Welcome to Managing Marketing. We come this week from the UK where I'm attending the ProcureCon Marketing Conference here in London and just had a terrific presentation from Peter Rowe who is a marketing professional with a particular focus on the commercialisation and commercial management of marketing. So welcome Peter. Thanks, lovely to see you. Um, look, thank you. Uh, the presentation you just did with this idea of the transformation that's happening in marketing, but also the increased opportunity for commercial uh, management and focus being brought to mar marketing. What do you think, Peter, are the really big opportunities here for marketers and businesses? So I think the general topic of conversation has always been to make marketing be seen as an investment by the chief finance officer and not as a cost to a business. Yeah. So that's the, the goal. Um, it's very difficult to achieve. Uh, and to set out, um, you really need to understand where you are today. Yeah. So I break my marketing down into three uh, areas of spend. First is uh, non-working capital. Yep. Uh, so I want to get rid of as much of that as possible. Yep. That's never going to be a return on investment. Yep. The second area is committed spend. Yep. Stuff that I can't address. I can't get out of it. For that non-addressable non spend. Non-addressable spend. Yeah. For that, I want that to work as hard as it can. Because yeah. if I'm spending it, I'm going to focus all of my effort on the outcomes of that investment. The third area, which hopefully is the biggest area, is your discretionary working capital. Yeah. And that's the spend area that you're going to focus on increasing its effectiveness and its measurability. Which is driving value for the business. Because yeah. what, you've, what you've just described there is not an unusual commercial approach to any sort of business or commercial enterprise, is it? No, it's 101 commercial. Yeah. But it's not a discipline that we typically see in many marketing functions or organisations because my experience, and, and you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that marketers seem to be obsessed with strategy and implementation but not necessarily performance measurement and learnings. As a general statement, as and a, I'm, talk, as I'm a not As a general talking, statement yeah. to the industry, you would say that marketing historically has been about brand building mm -hmm. and the conversation with finance and with the chief executive around brand building has traditionally been about how much money can I have. Yeah and my problem with that is that brand for most organizations doesn't sit on the balance sheet. Correct. Right? And so I hear marketers saying to me all the time, well they need to change the accounting system so that brand sits on the balance sheet. And it's almost like, well, it's not going to happen. So how can you build brand and deliver tangible commercial growth through your marketing, isn't it? Isn't that really the challenge? Well, that is the challenge and the opportunity is in the data. Yeah. Because we're now in a world where our data capability will enable us to build our brand and it will enable us to measure that brand build exercise. And if you look at the balance sheet of a company or more specifically the share price of a company, what you'll find over time is that more companies' share price will be dictated to by how well they manage their data. Mm. 
because the value of the company is in its use of its data, really. Well, we saw a um, presentation this morning. There was, a, I can't remember the name, a, a Yale professor that said, you know, the companies, the 5% of companies that use data really well will be the ones that are 6% more likely to succeed uh, in business. And all that means is understanding your customer better so that you're able to maximise your the commercial value of those customers, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, in the, in you know, before we had data, it was human relationships. That's mm. what built the knowledge of the customer. It was that face-to-face -face interaction. All we're doing is we're, we're adding the face-to-face -face experience with non-face-to-face -face experiences. They touch our brands in it than all of the other points of presence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yet, there is still a lot of confusion, isn't there, around the role of data and how to use it, and you know, and, and I'm talking generally here because there are some categories that are better at it than others. You know, I think um, you know uh, businesses where there's already a, a direct customer relationship and a huge amount of data about those customers have probably been early into the thing. But uh, consumer goods, for instance, really struggle with the idea of customer data because they don't have that direct relationship. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's a challenge for the consumer goods industry is without first party data, how are you driving marketing return on investment when your customer is not the consumer? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Customer is the retailer or distributor. Yeah. Consumer is the end user. Well, if you take a, you know, a chocolate bar. Yeah. The person who buys it from the supermarket is probably a parent and the consumer is the child. So you can split it down into even further at the nth degree uh, okay. to make it more complicated. So what exactly are you going to do uh, as a marketing department on a consumer brand is build activity content that is relevant to your consumer segment or your audience segment. Yeah. And that's the best way to drive uh, your your brand and and your corporate character and you, what your higher purpose. Hmm. So your higher purpose isn't to make chocolate. <laughs> well, you'd hope not. You'd hope not. No. Yeah. The only reason I wake up in the morning and go to work is to make chocolate. Maybe there are some people that uh, that's enough. But you know, I, uh, in fact, Mondelez today wasn't uh, the Cadbury component of Mondelez was something about joy to life or yeah was that was, was their it, purpose yeah. yeah. Yeah, the yeah. purpose is bringing joy. But I can see which is that, nice. that you know we were talking about uh, uh, they were talking about getting a DMP and uh, the idea of first and second and third party data. And I kept thinking, I wonder where Cadbury uh, Mondelez gets their first party data because yeah, a bank, a telco, any services company, a utility has information about customers and what they do with the product, mm -hmm. but how, how, you know, consumer goods? Well, what you've got is data soup, yeah. which is a mix of first, second and third party data. And the data soup of a telco or a bank is rich in first party data. Mm. And the data soup of a consumer goods brand is, is rich in third party data. Mm. So it's still data and you can still use it and it'll still make your marketing more measurable and more effective. More insightful. Yeah, mm. uh, it's just soup. Mm. One of the um, issues though is uh, obviously privacy with data. 
You know, I know the EU especially, and who knows, after Brexit, it may be irrelevant here in the UK. <laughs> but no, uh, in, <laughs> in the, uh, the EU, um, you yeah, know, there, there are big issues around privacy. It's, uh, it's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because as a marketer, you need to be able to understand your customer through data, but the customers largely through the um, EU and through government are trying to limit the amount of data and how you use it. Yeah, and I would say that there's a healthy amount of suspicion as to the motives of what we're able to achieve now. Mm. So algorithmic copy can take a person's, an individual's oh. tone of voice yeah. from skimming their their internet presence yeah. and algorithmically write you copy that is written in your own tone of voice. Mm. And that sounds like magic, but it's completely feasible. So I think that good data protection is designed to make sure that a customer or a potential customer or any member of any audience understands what we're doing. Yeah. That's what data protection should be. It should be saying you are safe and you understand that these how these messages are getting to you. Yeah. And we're not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. That's good data protection. Yeah, that it's not some um, clandestine service like you know the CIA pulling uh, strings behind the scene. It's actually uh, legitimately trying to understand the customer better so you can do better service. I, um, well, the people who want to interrogate the data the most are exactly those services. Or the NSA, isn't it, in America? Yeah, all of those. Yeah, yeah, they collect huge amounts, every phone call. There is no privacy. The idea of actually having privacy is actually a bit anachronistic. Yeah, it, it, it totally is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's but, why I don't know what's your uh, online presence. Uh, you know, if I went in and Googled uh, Peter Rowe, would I get a lot of information, or are you fairly careful about what you share? Um, pretty careful. Right. Yeah. Mainly because I don't want people to misinterpret that I speak on behalf of my employer. Yeah, of um, course. I want my content to be driven by me and me as a as a human being. So, from a corporate perspective, from a professional perspective I'm very quiet on yeah. on what and, I put out there and that's uh, that's completely understandable because you know there's uh, commercial uh, considerations um, in regards to the things that everyone is privy to with their own organizations that shouldn't be in the commonplace but I think the conversation here is more about general trends that we both observe as uh, professionals yeah. in yeah. the marketplace now, um, the only reason I talk about uh, online presence is that I made a decision a long time ago that there, I have no privacy, so I would wa rather curate and populate with uh, what I want people to know and withhold the bits that I don't want them to know. Because I think ultimately that's better than trying to hide everything, because in trying to hide it, you actually create an opportunity for people to misinterpret it. And people have an appetite for that. Consumers have a huge appetite for that. That's yeah. why reality television is so popular. Yeah. One of the um, one of the things going back to data and and, and uh, I, I've had marketers really have trouble with it. And I tell them about uh, an office I have in Melbourne in Australia that had a coffee shop downstairs with an Italian guy. And the first time I went into his coffee shop, 
he realised I'd never been in there before and he introduced himself and he asked my name, asked me about what I wanted, made my coffee. The next day he remembered my name and my coffee order and even on my birthday gave me a cake. And there was, he did this with all his customers and there was always people lining up. And someone bought the business off him and the business disappeared because they didn't have any of that. Now I say to, say to uh, my marketing clients, this guy had a database in his head. He had a customer database that he used to increase our experience of his shop and his brand. And all technology allows us to do is to actually do that at scale. Correct. So why is it that people are really struggling with that concept, both on a consumer basis, a government basis, and a marketing basis? I think they're struggling because of the pace of change. Okay. That you're absolutely right. All of our activity and the data that we use is designed to enhance customer experience because better customer experience results in better business results. Mm-hmm. And all we're doing is we are adding to the human experience with non-human experience. Yeah. So that's fine if the world moved at a slow pace. But we've had consumers move from early internet to full internet to mobile first within 15 years. Mm-hmm. And that pace is, is really difficult to get your head around. If you're trying to deliver customer experience and you don't know how your target audience is consuming media and you don't know what the next thing is going to be then that's why a lot of people are struggling with it i think it's also perhaps the volume of data there's a volume aspect too i think on volume all you need to do is build your own confidence so Mm -hmm. take a little bit of something and do a little bit of activity test and learn measure it build it knock it down, build it and knock it down, and just do it that way. You don't have to solve your marketing data capability at an enterprise level. No. Uh, you know, on a, prog- on a three-month program or, you know, with all these people looking at it, that's not the way you do it. You do little bits, test and learn, roll it out. The good yep. stuff you build, the stuff that doesn't work, doesn't matter, drop it and carry on. Mm. It's interesting, the idea of iteration, because that actually talks directly to um, my background as a scientist. The scientific method is observe, hypothesize, test, learn, hypothesize, test, learn, hypothesize, test, learn. Yeah. Um, it's the, you're basically saying the same thing, but in a commercial aspect, not a scientific aspect. Exactly. Uh, the methodology is exactly the same. And in um, technology, it's called agile. Yeah. And that's all it is. They do scrums and sprints and all these cool things, but all they're doing is test, learn, deploy, test, learn, deploy. In lots and lots of small iterations that all point towards an end vision. And that's the important bit, is if you've got a vision, then everyone can point towards the same thing. If you've got Agile and it's all pointing in different directions, it's not going to get very far. Yeah, because you're not aligned on what the ultimate objective is, so yeah. the, you waste a huge amount of time. Yeah. It's interesting for me when you talk, you know, you raise uh, Agile and Scrum and these these methodologies because they apply to a, you know, always on, always learning system, yet marketing has traditionally been uh, insight, ideation, 
execution campaign, then stop, regroup, start again. Series almost military style in, you know, tomorrow we're going to be this far down into the enemy lines and, and we uh, marshal our forces and head out and do it. And you, extending that battle metaphor, the danger is there is success and failure and when you fail, it's seen as a huge misstep and when you succeed, you're heroes. In moving to always-on marketing, always interacting, always learning about your customers and, and enhancing the customer experience, do you think marketers and organisations are going to have to learn that failure is not failure, it's just another way of learning? Yeah, failure is experience. So how do you set that as a context within an organisation that looks at marketing failure as waste? So what you need to be able to do is create the boundaries of a, self, a safe environment. Mm -hmm. So someone said to me recently, if I'm going to blow a hole in a ship, as long as the hole's above the waterline, I can blow as many holes as I like. <laughs> if you're not going right. below the waterline, you're going to sink the whole ship, and that's not acceptable. So that's the analogy for test yeah. and learn. But, uh, Do it in a the, safe place. Yeah, the plimsoll line. Yeah, if you're exactly. below the plimsoll line, yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah, so if you shoot a hole okay. under the water, you're out. So, so that uh, makes me think of the 70-20-10 uh, rule of marketing budgeting. Have you heard of this? Uh, I think Ford, yeah. Ford was one of them. You know, 70% is business as usual, doing the usual marketing program. 10% uh, is test and learn. And then the 20% is to actually amplify what's learnt in the 10% so that it can actually eventually become part of the 70%. Yeah? Yeah. So uh, uh, on a personal level throughout your career, have you either heard or been involved in that type of approach? Because very few people, a lot of people talk about it. I haven't heard from a lot of people that have seen it work. I've talked about it a lot. I've never implemented it, but I have suggested previously to marketing departments that they take 10% of their budget and, and ring-fence it for innovation. Mm. Um, but I've never, I've never seen that being built in to a, to a company's DNA or its, yeah. or its approach. It's interesting. It's one of those um, uh, ideas, business ideas, that everyone talks about. It, but I, I, there must be something about it that's incredibly difficult for people to get their heads around or, or to make the commitment to 10% uh, innovative I, I, learning? I think what happens is um, because marketing and in most companies in a general perspective, marketing is still seen as a cost and it has a budget which is mainly discretionary. If the business is having a bad year, they knock on your door and they take some money away. Um, if they have a good year, you might get a bit more. But it's that hand-to-mouth existence, I think, that stops you from saying, right, I'm going to commit X percentage of this budget to pure innovation. Um, I think it's not marketing's problem to answer. It's the chief executives. And the, and the CFO. I mean, I think one of the ways uh, CFOs and commercial people can help marketers is actually help them understand the value and power of the budget that they have yeah. and actually uh, encourage them and, and in a way protect them, create that safe environment within the organisation to do these things. Well, every business um, sits somewhere on a triangle and the three points of the triangle are service, price and innovation. Mm -hmm. 
and you can plot any business in the world towards one point of that triangle. So if your business is innovation, Mm -hmm. and you would think of companies like Dyson, Tesla, you know, those kind of businesses, then if that's part of your corporate culture, innovation is never going to be a problem. Now, I haven't worked in those in one of, businesses. Of <laughs> I've worked in a price one, I've worked yeah. in a service one, but I've never worked in an innovation one. So maybe if we went to those businesses, we'd find this yeah. approach to innovation budgeting. It's interesting you say that because I reflect on my own career and even the clients, the range of clients we work with. And while innovation is the hot topic that you know business is talking about and everyone's saying, innovate, innovate, the Australian government has even put $1.1 billion for the ideas boom, which I just think is a ridiculously small drop in the ocean. But anyway, um, everyone's hot on innovation and technology innovation. Yet most businesses are, to your point, in the service or price positioning on the triangle because I think it's tangible and it's you know, seen as low risk. Yet everything we hear about innovation is if you don't innovate, that's high risk because you will be disrupted. Yeah. Yeah. It's your outward facing proposition to your audience mm. is service price or innovation. If it is innovation, people need to know you for that. The question is, are you investing your marketing in innovation or are you investing your marketing in just communicating that you're innovating which is different yeah and and the um, big uh, consulting firms the deloitte the ibm uh, the baines the boston consulting group they're all doing i think they've all got the same slide that shows uh how many markets or categories have been disrupted you know and it's the uber it's the airbnb it's the You've seen the slide. You just rolled your eyes. You've seen the slide, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seen it a million times. We've all yeah. seen that slide. Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing no one talks about. They've disrupted it using technology to actually enhance the customer experience. Yes. Right? Yet they just reduce that down to the word, you have to innovate to disrupt. But it's not about disruption and it's not about technology. It's actually about customer. Yes. And so why is it that the, they're talking about technology and they're not talking about marketing and sales, which is where the customer interface for all of these businesses, price and service, exists? Why is it that marketing is, is not at the forefront of this discussion around disruption? In your mind, and generally, you know, um, this is generally speaking, I'm not asking you to make comments about any company that you've worked for now or in the past, but as an observer, as an astute commercial person, what is it that we need to do as marketing as a category that puts it at the forefront of this innovation change? The reason why established businesses don't focus on disruption is because they have legacy mm. and they already exist at scale the, and the, 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 the legacy loss I don't, even want to, I don't even want to say them but the Ubers and the yeah. Airbnbs and all these things they're, they're brand that. new they have no legacy no one no shareholders no one's telling them what to do just you know there with a cool bit of software and they just put it out there and if it scales up amazing and if it doesn't it doesn't they do try something else and that you need to try and 
mirror that culture in an organization that is not used to doing that because they've got a lot of customers and a lot of stakeholders and a lot of audiences who already know them for for what they do which makes disruption a lot more difficult mm. you can completely accept a brand new app that's going to revolutionize the taxi industry because it's brand new there's a new brand new proposition new everything mm. and it's on your new smartphone so it's all new and so therefore in the customer's eyes you know what could possibly go wrong if you were an established uh, I don't know like if you were Hertz for example and you wanted to move into the taxi business you'd get a lot of resistance if you did the same proposition because people are the the the, the, the brand association they have with something like a car rental company doesn't correlate to a, uh, an Uber. Mm. And it wouldn't work as well, even if you had the same proposition. Except I think it, yeah, look, the, the, that's about brand elasticity um, because it's does the uh, Avis brand translate to being a taxi service or a, a new form of taxi service? I think my... My concern is, and, and in what you said, is they start with nothing and they come up with a bit of software. The really smart companies come up with a piece of software because they've observed a consumer opportunity that they think they can solve. And that's to me, is a marketing role. That's what marketing is at its core. You know, marketing is not just promotions, it is, you know, creating products and services, pricing them at the right amount, delivering them in the formats required. You know, the great marketers of the world, the Henry Ford that said if I'd asked consumers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Um, the Steve Jobs, who's always thrown up there as the, you know, the guy that said uh, uh, no one would have thought, of, you know, told him to create the i... The iPhone. Uh, the, or the i... Um, Anything The iPod. Yeah. You know, the iPod, the idea of having 100,000 songs in your pocket was not something anyone could contemplate because they couldn't even imagine it. But he observed people doing things and thought, you know, I'm just wondering why it's become a technology drive. You know, like it's the techs that are driving it and not the marketing fraternity, the marketing profession that should be the ones that are in touch with customers. Have they become dislocated from the business in a way that they've become a service provider in a lot of cases. Not all companies, but in a lot of cases. It's a very good challenge, isn't it? That your innovators, the well-known innovators, aren't from a marketing background. They're from a technology background. But it's easy to innovate with software. It's cheap. It's fast. cheap, yeah. Relatively cheap, fast. Yeah, and there's loads of environments that are built to accelerate that and harness it and develop it and nurture it you know in Israel in yeah, the startup Silicon Valley yeah. and you know and all these hubs and you know everyone's excited about it and um, you know a little bit like multi-millionaire sportsmen yeah. you know they're only the one the one percent of the one percent but see it annoys the hell out of me Peter because um, the one thing I hear all the time is that startups who at the core to me had a great marketing idea, i.e. they came up with a product, software, software as a service, software as a product, that solved a consumer problem. 
yet they apparently, everyone says, are particularly poor at marketing themselves. That to me is a huge conundrum. How can you be the type of person that can create a disruptive product in a way that goes to the core, you know, to make it successful, it has to go to the core of a human insight, and yet you're hopeless at marketing. Yeah. Any observations? Any thoughts? Because <coughs> I, 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 sit, I, I, I sit there contemplating why the, why the world has ended up like this. Just, it's the fascinating spectrum of human behaviour and characteristics that someone who is good at innovating Mm. Uh, or a technologist isn't a very good communicator mm. and someone who's brilliant at communicating can't invent anything mm. and you need that complementary skill set mm. it's, well, it's a little bit like having um, you know a marketing a you know brand skill set to mix with a data skill set to mix with a commercial mm. mindset they don't always exist in the same brain mm. Thank you. I because, just robbed your summary. No, no, because that's what I was going to say to you. I, that's why, you know, when we've been talking in your presentation today, the exciting thing for me is if marketers embrace commercial reality and embrace, uh, you know, commercial management as a way of underpinning marketing, marketing comes back into being a business driver, not a service provider. So that's, you know... That to me is the opportunity that having more uh, commercial people, perhaps in procurement, perhaps in other parts of the business, get more aligned and more involved in marketing will actually help move that forward. Yeah, yeah. The, the way that we're, the way that the industry is moving, marketing will will if it isn't already marketing will be the place for proposition development, mm. and the data will be telling you what it is. Yeah. And if there isn't data, then there's a there's a an insight or a qualitative element that's telling you what what it could be as well. So I love the mix of uh, intuition and data informed decision making. Yeah. yeah, and it's that mix. The combination of the two. Yeah. You know, I, I've got marketers that go. I go on gut instinct, and I go, "Well, don't reject data because that'll just make a more informed gut." <laughs> <laughs> and and also, when it isn't right, you've got at least something to go back to to work out where you went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Peter, that's fantastic. I really enjoyed uh, catching up and having the conversation. Yeah, me too. It's nice you came over to the UK. And um, good luck with the future. Let's stay in touch. Thanks very much. Thank you.